Hello, everybody. We are here with another edition of the One Million by One Million podcast. One M by One M, as you know, is the first and only global virtual accelerator, and I'm here today with Jason Cahill from McCune Capital. Jason, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. Well, let's get acquainted. Tell us a bit about yourself, about uh, the fund, your investing focus, etc. Sure. Um, I okay. I guess first me, then the fund. Um, I think I'm on career number four. I started out as a uh, within the military, uh, working in Army Special Forces, uh, and I spent seven years doing that pre and post 9/11. Uh, Left that, became a consultant, mostly in the tech space. Uh, Left that to start my own company. And along that path of starting my own company, met a lot of interesting founders at various events and decided that investing in uh, interesting founders is a lot easier than building your own company. Uh, So that's kind of where I ended up. The fund was actually born out of that, where while I was operating the last company I started, uh, initially, I was doing some angel investments, and as I sold and exited the company, I thought, okay, this was a lot of fun. It was really uh, rewarding to be able to meet powerful, interesting, uh, determined founders to to help them along that journey. So as I sold the company, I thought, this is what I want to do uh, full time, and that was mm-hmm. where the fund was formed. Okay. And uh, you're based in New York? I'm based in New York. How big a fund is McCune Capital? Sure. So fund one was just a sort of proof of concept, $2 million fund. Uh, With three criteria I set for myself internally, Um, can can I find interesting deals? Can I be beneficial to the founders after I've written the check? And ultimately, are these good companies? So can I can I make money? Um, so that was fund one, and fund two, where I took on a partner. <clears throat> excuse me. Fund two, we're currently raising about uh, we're about a third into the fundraise. It'll be a fifty million dollar fund. It's more of a typical seed stage fund. Okay. And what uh, size checks are you trying to write, and what? stage do you like to invest in? Sure. So typical checks for us will be somewhere in the 300 to 500K range for the first check. Um, And so stage and state, uh, in a perfect world, if you're raising a million dollars or less at a $5 million or less valuation. Um, I know West Coast people chuckle when I talk about $5 million valuations because it seems like there aren't there aren't that many uh, companies in that space, but uh, we're still seeing a lot of value at the So be aware of the fact that One Million by One Million is a global platform and we see (laughs) lots of companies in the $5 million valuation and we work with very early stage companies and we are very supportive of companies that raise small amount of money and even look for early exits. There's a LinkedIn article that is trending that I just wrote, uh, bootstrapping to exit. Um, so all of those are configurations that I find perfectly exciting, interesting, meaningful. So please 
be completely at ease to discuss five million dollar valuation. Gotcha, gotcha. And and um, dovetailing in with the article you just wrote, I don't know if you saw there was a New York Times article written um, the last couple of days that's making the rounds. Uh, I know, and, and I don't agree with a lot of what she said, Erin Griffith, and uh, she did not yeah. talk to me. She should have, because I'm probably the biggest authority on this subject. Uh, uh, she doesn't understand. I don't think VCs should get lost. VCs have a role. Bootstrapping has a role. Yeah. We have a big philosophy of bootstrap first, raise money later. Some companies are just not venture fundable, and those have to bootstrap all the way. But there is an enormous number of companies that bootstrap first and raise money later. So, so she didn't get any of these points, and it was a very naive article. Right, and I think to distill an entire industry down to one set of bad actors, um, like you said, it's a bit naive because you could you could really make you know. You can make villains in, in the industry. You could say that banking. I'll write a rebuttal on that. You can look out for that. Right. Don't worry about it. I'll, I'll right. take care of that. Um, <laughs> and, and, and so, well, I've been on a couple panel discussions where uh, people to the left and right of me on the panel will say, my job is to you know, value your company as cheaply as possible. Um, and I kind of stand up and say, well, as a former entrepreneur, I need both sides to be happy because if I come in there and say, ha ha, I've got you at a $2 million valuation and you're living in Brooklyn. Well, I don't want to take that deal because I know you have to live and breathe and, and pay bills. Um, so, so there's always that tension. Um, but yeah, on the coming back to the question of, of uh, evaluation in terms. So uh, in a perfect world, we want to own 10% of the company at the first check and then preserve mm -hmm. that capital through two additional rounds. Um, and that's a fluid number because there are going to be situations where maybe we get more than 10% and there might be some deals where we have relationships with the founders so we're willing to come in in a, you know, a, a syndicate or where we come in later and take a smaller percent. Now, what about types of companies, what industry segments do you like to invest in, B2B, B2C, any, any other, any more color on what you like to look at? Absolutely, sure. So the way um, I say it is we invest in new technologies in older industries. So the flavor on that would be uh, your, your advanced data technologies like artificial intelligence, machine learning, and robotics that are um, sort of sea change type opportunities in energy, agriculture, transportation, supply chain. So those older industries where if you go into a truck depot in Iowa, they're more likely to have a grease pencil on a glass board than they are to have an iPad tracking shipments. Um, and so that's where we have found, so a typical investment, for example, uh, we invested in a machine learning uh, in the trucking space company where they have a 25-year data set looking at everything related to the risk of 18-wheel uh, trucking, so accidents, injuries, incidents, where by building this machine learning platform, they're able to reduce the risk uh, for their customers so that they say, okay, I can send Tom, Sally, Jane on this route from Pittsburgh to uh, Omaha and 
So it's based on traffic, weather, type of truck, time, time of day, and a lot of other variables. They're able to hone in on how do I reduce my risk the greatest? Because, you know, Jane, after 4 p.m., uh, she gets tired. Well, Bob, when it's raining, is not that good of a driver. So that marriage of old, old industry and new tech is where we really where we like to play. Great. Now, um, what about geography? You are located in New York. You're obviously seeing beautiful from the New York tri-state area. What, is that your, uh, you know, catch land, or do you have a broader footprint in terms of deal flow? Yeah, so based on the industries, um, <laughs> there's not a lot of agriculture, as it turns out, happening in uh, Manhattan. Um, but we, we have bounded geography loosely, where I would say, if you look sort of Boston to the north, DC to the south, Pittsburgh to the west, we kind of think of that as our triangle. Um, because I look at sort of the three C's of a successful venture being code, capital, and customers. With Pittsburgh and Boston, I have MIT and Carnegie Mellon, so that covers mm -hmm. my code dynamic. Customers, uh, well, most of the Fortune 500 is either headquartered or has a presence in New York. And then capital, for sure, uh, New York. Uh, it's it's clipping at the heels in a lot of cases uh, to Silicon Valley. So that's kind of where we found geography. Um, we, we have two investments in Austin. Um, in fund two, I think, it also comes down to if I'm coming in early and taking 10% of the company, maybe I'm going to be on the board, then I want to be a little closer. If it's going to be a syndicated deal where maybe we're taking a lesser percentage and I have faith and trust in the board partners, then I'm okay with it being a little further away. Okay. Um, but we'll probably end up with 75% of the fund in the geography I explained. Okay. Now, um, if you look at your deal flow of the last 18 months or you know, 12 months, 18 months, what trends are you seeing? Um, yeah, so I would say um, Deal flow at large, not necessarily deals that I have invested in. Deal flow at large, I've seen a ton of cannabis and a ton of uh, blockchain for X. Um, yes. Hopefully that trend does not. Very big. We see a lot of that, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I tend to stay away from industries that are highly regulated or very speculative. Um, so, so they're not for me. I, I, I think. Things that I've seen a lot of flow in in the last 12 months that do get me excited. Um, so I think the macro topic you could define two topics I've seen that I find interesting. One is waste to value. So converting some type of waste stream into a value chain, whether mm -hmm. that is uh, repurposing, reusing, recycling. Um, there have been a number of technologies, I think, that excite me in that space. And the next would be sort of distributed energy. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that um, the beauty, uh, how do I say this? Politics is always in the background of things when it comes to energy because one side wants X, the other side wants Y. The beauty of a lot of these uh, sort of quote unquote 
alternative energies is they're now cost competitive where policy and politics don't really matter. Um, because, you know, on a per kilowatt basis, on a, on a, on a unsubsidized basis, once they become cost competitive, you can talk to both sides of the political, political spectrum and say, look, we're here to make money, not squabble over, you know, policy. Um, so I think that's a trend I'd like to see uh, really play out. The Everything from this sort of um, sourcing and lead generation to target who is in the market to the production and distribution, um, that whole value chain, I think, you know, when you talk about energy, that's, that's a trillion dollar market. So figuring out um, where are opportunities, where are the low hanging fruits, where it's completely unmodernized and there's an opportunity. And that's what we've been seeing a lot more fuel flow. Are you chasing unicorns? Um, I mean, yes and no. Uh, I, I, I don't get upset when my companies get marked up as billion dollars. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I don't, because I'm looking at a company that, you know, there's been a lot written recently. Um, the the typical valuation I think I lost saw of an acquisition is around fifty million dollars. Um, so if I invested a company at five million and it gets acquired to fifty, that's a ten x. I can live with that. Um, so I have I have done very well being efficient with capital. Where of course I'd love for all of my companies to become unicorns. But if they sell for $500 million, I can look my LPs in the face and we can all have a very great weekend. Everybody's very happy. So what is the lower threshold of that? What is, uh, um, you know, comment on what I said in the bootstrapping to exit article about the smaller opportunities. Mm -hmm. There is a class of investors, micro VCs, and uh, primarily microvis is emerging who are paying attention to the smaller opportunities acknowledging the fact that most exits in the industry happen at the sub 50 million price point are those of interest to you or are they too small um, well yes they are of interest so um, when I'm when I'm doing my initial diligence I'm going to build a model so I could have the first cut would be problem, solution, market, team. You know, yep. do I believe in your problem, solution? So on the market component, um, whether or not you get to unicorn stage, I, you know, I would much rather you have gotten, like, acquired at $50 million um, and healthy versus you were chasing a billion dollars and you get scrapped for 50. So, um, so yeah, I, I have seen, you know, if you told me, if you told me your total addressable market is 100 billion, I'm not going to invest. Um, but I think that there are a lot of um, efficient uses of capital where um, we're seeing founders that either want to get the IPO isn't necessarily the end game for a large number of, of founders where they think, okay, you know, if we can do X, Y, and Z, we should be a great acquisition target for 200 million to 300 million. Um, obviously, there are a lot of 
dots that have to line up for that to happen. But yeah, I I have invested in a handful of companies where it would be hard to believe them reaching all them staying in the market and competitive all the way to a billion dollars. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. You know, um, as I said in the bootstrapping to exit article, I think it's a uh, we have to pay attention to these more niche opportunities that have may not have a billion dollar or five billion dollar market uh, opportunity, right? TAM. This could very well be TAMs of seven, eight hundred million dollars, and if if a company executes well and gets to, you know, a couple of million dollars, and a strategic who has the channel acquires them for a good multiple. These are also very reasonable, you know, opportunities to make money. So I, I'm, what I'm trying to gauge is like where are where are people's heads on these opportunities? Because I mean, if you flip the point of view, right? If I'm running a company that is that has 50 million, 100 million, 200 million in revenue, and I'm looking for my next product line, I already have the channel, right? I've invested in the channel. I raised gobs of venture capital. And, and, you know, sold one product or maybe one and a half products to my customer base and I've got a business that is, that, that's good, but I'm, I'm, I'm basically looking like a one trick pony right now and I need to expand my portfolio of products. So what is the best, easiest way for me to do this? I would like to acquire another product that is relatively cheap to acquire and be able to put it through my channel and, and just, you know, go from, let's say, 1 million, 2 million in revenue to 200 million in revenue on that product line. And that, with a seven, 800 million TAM, is perfectly doable. Right, right. And, and I think, um, you know, and, and maybe this will show my bias as an East Coast investor. Um, it, it's funny because uh, when, when you watch movies and they show sort of the Wall Street banker, you think of them as like super cutthroat, very sort of um, sharp elbows. When I think of West Coast VC, I actually think of that, where you know people don't really want to collaborate on deals. Everybody, so you think of your tier one VCs on the West Coast, um, everybody uses the word proprietary deal flow to sort of say why they're better than someone else. And there are a handful of names that, yeah, I guess I could believe that for. But, but by and large, um, like you're talking about these smaller deals and smaller rounds, um, on the on the East Coast in New York, especially, there's sort of this very collegial environment where we share deal flow at the earliest stages because over time we know what we like, we know what we don't, and we tend to sort of elevate things that we find interesting amongst our group. Um, and the reason I, I mention that is if I'm only investing in unicorns um, and, and really chasing those. Uh, then I have to be sort of sharp elbow because there simply aren't that many of them. I'm not going well, to and that's share. where the the dynamic comes from. Unfortunately, that is you put your finger on the problem. That that's where the dynamic comes from. The West Coast VCs all believe that there are maybe you know five or ten deals in the whole industry a year that they have to get into to be able to you know say that yeah we've we've kind of put in. Uh, an investment in in the top deals of the year of this vintage, right. so they're right. very very competitive and and they drive up valuation 
patients and and that's how the whole you know over bloated valuation phenomenon has happened it's it's actually very problematic what has what that has created is a lot of debt by overfunding and i mean lots of you know ancillary problems that actually the new york times article does refer to that those problems of excess funding and and excess pressure to grow at an unhealthy pace but that is there is a whole vast universe of entrepreneurs and companies out there and and we see them probably uh, more than anybody else because of where we sit in the value chain that are very good investments and will make very good money if if they're shepherded in a capital efficient manner with all the you know parameters kept in mind instead of you know mindlessly funneling cash into them yeah yeah and and i think uh to to the point which you were saying about sort of that west coast uh competitive mindset um i think uh you know just to put a rather uh, frankness about it um we in this industry get paid on fees so the more money right. you raise the more fees you get exactly so if you raise a ton it's of a capital, racket, actually you have to deploy a lot of capital yeah right a scam um, Right. So that's why um even for us, so our our second fund is fifty million. Um, we thought really long, like, okay, is this is this the right number? If we're smaller, what are the constraints? If if we're larger, what is the signal? Um, because I love getting into conference room with the founder and sort of mapping out what do the next three months look like, who are the next five customers you need an intro to. Um, how do we find you the right senior developer you need? And if I'm deploying three, five, ten million dollar checks, I don't have that proximity. Because um, to me, that's the fun of this whole thing. Of course, we're in it to make money, but ultimately, investing in companies that are sort of making a real change in the world, um, and then meeting the founders behind it—that is, that that—that's that's the sort of the rare air that I get to breathe every day. Well, yes, and and I think if you talk to the people who have been around and who share that philosophy, um, venture capital, true venture capital, works best in the sub 300 million fund size level. If you go beyond 300 million, you can't really do real venture capital. Then you get into all this, you know, um, management fee scam mode and and try to. Mm-hmm. force feed cash into companies and, and blah 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 and all these unhealthy stuff so <laughs> so I think that's a that's something to keep in mind is that I think the smaller funds have a much more interesting role to play in the real venture capital and then the later funds I think the, the stratification that's happening in the industry right now is creating a different dynamic is that you know before a small fund you know would not would would not even exist right now the smaller funds exist so what we can we can what we are starting to see is that the smaller funds take the company for maybe 3 to 5 years of its life and then exit into the larger funds which who take them right. through the next right. 5 5 to 10 years of their life instead of you know the small funds going from 0 to 10 year uh, time frames and that's an okay dynamic that's that actually works if people, you know, 
start to understand that there are different roles and different ways of um, playing this venture investment game, that's, that works too. Sure. Okay, um, do you want to say uh, a few things to our uh, entrepreneurs in how you would like to work with them before we conclude? This is a fascinating conversation, exactly the kinds of conversations that should be happening in our industry. How do I like to work with founders? Sure. Um, so I, I kind of alluded to it. Um, I, I guess the three dimensions uh, that I look at are code, capital, and customers. Um, because generally speaking, founders that have just started a company, you know, you're either a business side person or a tech side person. Um, I have met maybe three people in my lifetime that are phenomenal at both. Uh, typically, you know, you do one or the other. So if you're great at fundraising, you probably aren't as great at writing code or hiring the right people. So I, I tend to, um, uh, it, based on probably my military background, uh, do sort of a threat assessment quickly to figure out if you're going to not make it, what is going to be the cause and how do we prop that up? How do we make your weakness a strength quickly? Um, mm -hmm. So if you come to me and tell me everything is awesome, then I don't really have time to work with you because you don't need my help. You know, if you simply want to check, I'm probably not the right investor for you. I tend to um, open up my LP base and open up my network to figure out um, are there customers I can introduce you to? Um, can I find somebody on the HR side that's going to be a great fit? Um, and so yeah, that's that's the best way I like to work with entrepreneurs. Um, we, it, outside the context of this interview for here, but I also teach a class at Columbia. Um, and so I tend to get involved in a lot of different things. Um, I'm, the, uh, I'm an advisor at Carnegie Mellon. I teach a class at Columbia. I, uh, I just like to sort of meet entrepreneurs sort of the earlier the better to figure out what you're doing, how can I help. Um, I'm typically not going to, you know, if I go to a pitch day event, I'm not going to write a check as I'm walking out to the parking lot because I mm -hmm. want to understand, you know, yeah. what makes you tick. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of the specifics I guess I'm looking for would be, um, again, with that problem solution market team, um, problem's kind of binary. If you, pro if you solve a problem that I haven't talked about or that isn't, and indicated on our website, then we're probably not a good fit. Um, solution, tech, tech founders tend to talk for hours and hours about solutions, um, and business founders tend to talk about market sizes. I need to know that both are viable, but ultimately I care about the team. Um, how long have you worked together? What makes you uniquely qualified to solve the problem? Brian Chesky, founder of Airbnb, he didn't run hotels before he founded Airbnb, but if you look at his resume, you can definitely get a sense of he's the right caliber person for this job. Um, and that's what I look for, that sort of intestinal fortitude that says these operators are going to hit it out of the park. Terrific. Thank you, Jason. That was a great conversation. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed the show today, and we will be back with another edition of the One Million by One Million podcast. Meanwhile, come to a roundtable if you want to bring your project to work in um, 
in one of these roundtable sessions. The schedule is on the website. If you're in the Bay Area or visiting the Bay Area, come see me at one of the One Million by One Million Rendezvous at uh, Cafe Boroni, and we will talk soon again.